Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So it planted the seed where I thought, well, I wonder if I could do a project on captive elephants and go on this. I took a trip that summer. I brought my daughters actually to investigate. I thought I'm going to do make a video. (laughs) I didn't know how to do video, but I thought I'm just I felt this need to go and either document or research what is the status of these elephants in captivity. I recorded and noticed (laughs) for the first time that elephants in captivity do this rocking. It's a stereotypic behavior that that's what biologists call it, where they rock back and forth. It's never seen in the wild or they pace. And this rocking, it's, it really um, eventually will, it causes so much damage to their joints and then they, they get arthritis and then, and not to mention it's showing their severe distress and boredom and normally they're walking 30 miles a day. So I, and then for the next five years, I traveled almost obsessively to go and gather as much footage and evidence of the conditions of elephants in, in zoos and also circuses. But my main focus was zoos. So, and then I had my first show, I exhibited at a gallery in Miami very, I was really scared because I didn't know how it would be received or anything, you know, because I did still photography and I hadn't ever exhibited a video. So I saw the painters in the space when I was, we were installing it. And I, I watched the painters as they were doing the, the, they were covering the screen, you know, painting it white and they watched it. And I could see, this was the opening day. I could see that they were were sort of mesmerized, and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be this is going to be okay." Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Colleen Plum. Colleen Plum makes photographs, videos, and public video projections investigating contradictory relationships people have with non-human animals. Her recent projects explore the way animals in captivity function as symbols of persistent colonial thinking, that a striving for human domination over nature has been normalized, and that consumption masks as curiosity. Plum's work sheds light on abnormal behaviors of captive animals in order to bring attention to implicit values of society as a whole, particularly those that perpetuate power imbalance and tyranny of artifice. By projecting videos on the street, Strangers connect as witnesses and contribute to the idea 
that sentient beings are not meant for spectacle or display. Plum's work is held in several permanent collections and has been widely exhibited, including the Portland Art Museum, Milwaukee Art Museum, Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, Blue Sky Oregon Center for the Photographic Arts in Portland, Dinah Mitrani Gallery, and the Screening Room in Miami, Southeast Museum of Photography in Dayton, Jen Beckman Gallery in New York, Union League Club of Chicago, and the Note Barrett Nature Museum in Chicago. Plum's work has appeared in LitHub, Psychology Today, Virginia Quarterly Review, The Village Voice, Blow Photo Magazine, Real Simple, New York Times Lens, Time Lightbox, Oxford American, Photo District News, and Artillery Magazine. Plum lives in Chicago and has taught photography and video at Columbia College Chicago since 1999. Today, we'll be speaking with Colleen about her 2020 book, 30 Times a Minute, published by Radius Books and with contributing essays by Mark Beckoff, Julia Cook, Catherine Doyle, Hope for Dalgian, Linda Hogan, Les O'Brien, Joyce Poole and Peter Gronley, Stephen M. Weiss, and Mandy Suzanne Wong. Captive elephants exhibit what biologists refer to as stereotypy, which includes rhythmic rocking, head bobbing, stepping back and forth, and pacing. Colleen Plum traveled to over 70 zoos in the U.S. and Europe and created a video featuring dozens of captive elephants in their small enclosures. She has photographed her gorilla public projections of the video in over 100 locations worldwide. 30 Times a Minute includes a selection of these photos, along with nine contributions from animal rights activists and scientists, in order to examine the way animals in captivity function as colonialist symbols of human domination of nature. Welcome, Colleen, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So your book is fantastic, as is the video that it's based on and the gorilla project with which you took it on the road. First, I read about your book, and then I paged through some of your book, and then I watched the video. Mm -hmm. So I, I think maybe I encountered your project in the reverse order of what was intended, but I'll tell you, it, it still worked for me very much. Mm. And I've come away thinking that you have something really quite profound here, uh, very beautiful and urgent. So congratulations on that. This is, this is really something special. Oh, thank you. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, the focus of your work. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for saying all that. Well, I'm, I live in Chicago. I've, I grew up here in Chicago, actually. And my first career at, in the very beginning was graphic design. And then I realized that I loved photography so much from the seeds that were planted in my undergrad time that I then went back to school to get my MFA in photography. And that was really a pivotal moment because I found myself, you know, leaving a cubicle working with clients to going to grad school and talking about ideas and mm -hmm. figuring out what should I work on. And it was also really intimidating. So I stumbled into this, this project thinking about how animals are, or their representations are everywhere in our, in our lives, you know, from 
the highest art, you know, Rubens paintings or through the history of painting and art and through basically art from the very, very beginning and how animals are represented to kitsch representations, you know, flamingos on the front lawn and uh, are then that we, the conclusion I drew from that project, which was about 10, 12 years of photographing was that, you know, I started looking at it as, it as a survey and then I concluded that we mostly it's based on us using and exploiting non-human animals. So it kind of created this, uh, uh, my, pers- my point of view was, had evolved because I found myself in, in meatpacker places with all these hundreds and hundreds of pigs hanging which was so disturbing and, or a fur shop. And so that's where the beginning of this, of the work, it evolved from that early point in thinking about how animals are ever present, but ever used. (laughs) I I recently spoke to an author named Jim Mason, who who wrote a, a book that I loved called an unnatural order. And he refers back to another author and text, and I cannot remember their names, but he has a, a really incredible theory about the omnipresence of animals, especially as regards children. And his theory is that humans evolved among animals, and in fact, our cognitive apparatus to evolve, to develop into adults, require, is because we evolved around animals for millions of years, mm-hmm. our brains, the, the brains of infants and children actually require animals mm. as the kind of stimulus in terms of categorizing things and understanding difference. Mm-hmm. So the reason that children are so drawn to them is because we, our brains evolved to literally be dependent upon them for its own development. I think that's mm. quite an incredible theory. Yeah, I think that's what I, I what I started thinking about was why do we just why do we even everything is even the artifice that we put f- representations or little animal figurines or fake f- just this fake animal presence. Um, what is with that desire or captive, you know, or or any way that we have sought to connect with non-human animals is is it some in some way uh, based on an instinct like some need right. that's a lack you know we live in this urban place or in, you know uh, ever i think that a couple of years ago we tipped to more people live in urban places than non-urban right so that we're missing something and so this desire that whole not, uh, my, that book that i was or that series is called animals are outside today and it was like what are we missing and what, what do we, what are we seeking to, to satisfy this need to connect with them? So there's something beautiful and important about it, but that it becomes this human, which leads to the next project where I, you know, it's a, it's an idea from an instinct perhaps that has gone awry where we're taking, like if you're, you know, if you're a rich landowner in Europe and you're going to go down and, Uh, go to, sorry, a place and take these animals that aren't from that area. And just this colonial idea is so embedded in our relationship with non-human animals and that 
it's this entitlement. Oh, let's just, we can do whatever we want. But underneath it is like this total interest. Like when we go to see an elephant that's captive, it's not because we're awful mean people. (laughs) It's because we're curious, but we've, it's become so normalized that it's, that it's okay. Like that we're not even stepping back saying, wait, is this right? Is this, is this, you know, so that's where the, the, the 30 times a minute project started is directly from one of my last photo shoots. I went to the United Center to see the, uh, to shoot the circus or whatever I could. And I saw the elephants in the parking lot and that's where it started. Well, I'm, I'm grateful that you went on that photo shoot. So, okay. So 30 times a minute, the video, the, we're talking about the video. I'm going to ask you about the installation component shortly, but could you just describe the video for the viewer? Also, how did you capture it? What do people see while watching it? So after that photo shoot and I saw the, it was November freezing cold in Chicago, you know, these elephants are walking out in a, in trunk, trunk to t- tail to trunk. And it planted, I was like, so pissed off. I was, why is this even happening? So it planted the seed where I thought, well, I wonder if I could do a project on captive elephants and go on this. I took a trip that summer I brought my daughters actually to investigate. I thought oh, I'm going to do make a video. <laughs> I didn't know how to do video, but I thought I'm just I felt this need to go and either document or research right. what is the status of these cap- elephants in captivity. So we went from Chicago to South Carolina and I recorded and n- noticed <laughs> for the first time that elephants in captivity do this rocking. It's a stereotypic behavior that that's what biologists call it, where they rock back and forth. It's never seen in the wild or they pace and this rocking it's, it really um, eventually will, it causes so much damage to their joints and then they, they get arthritis and then, and not to mention it's showing their severe distress and boredom. And normally they're walking 30 miles a day. So I, on that first trip, I recorded Joy in South Carolina doing this, and I held the camera steady, and I got a long sequence, a long shot of her rocking so massively, and I was like, "What is? What is that? What is she? Why is that happening?" And then I started researching, and then for the next five years, I traveled almost obsessively to go and gather as much footage and evidence of the conditions of elephants in, in zoos and also circuses. But my main focus was zoos. So, you know, anywhere I went or I was doing all these road trips, driving to every zoo that I could to gather this footage. And then I edited together about 12 minutes, which is, it was hard to decide what to do with all this footage, you know, hours and hours. Yeah what should I do? How, what, you know, what is, is this a durational, like I could do days long, (laughs) but I edited it to 12 minutes and wove them all together. And then I had my first show I exhibited at a gallery in Miami. Very, I was really scared because I didn't know how it would be received or anything, you know, because I did still photography and 
I hadn't ever exhibited a video. So I saw the painters in the space when I was, we were installing it. And I, I watched the painters as they were doing the, the, they were covering the screen, you know, painting it white and they watched it. And I could see, this is the opening day. I could see that they were, were sort of mesmerized by seeing this and um, engaged and I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. I consider myself an animal rights person, fanatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a lot of books. I watch all the PETA videos that I scroll past on social media. Mm-hmm. And I was still really astonished by the video. It is deeply, deeply moving. Mm. I would definitely encourage our listeners, if possible, to pause this recording and watch the video. It's, as you said, it's 12 minutes long. It's a very short video. Um, I took notes while watching the video and I looked over them after and the word, the words underlined were existential horror. I mean, it's, it's incredible how empathetic these creatures are and how visible their suffering is. Um, Mm -hmm. The video I think works on multiple levels. It's of course a document of the trauma that elephants who live in captivity experience, but it's also a document and expose, if I may say, of the places where the elephants are kept in captivity, zoos and circuses. Mm-hmm. Um, to film the video, you had to infiltrate zoos and circuses often or exclusively without permission. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit more about that? The and You don't have to go into too much detail. I know it's not your focus, but what was your experience of the zoos and the circuses and, and the condition of the elephants there and the ways that they treated the elephants? I, mm-hmm. Again, superficial, I know that mm-hmm. this isn't something you studied specifically, but you, you were there on the ground, you saw it, you felt the need to document it. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it was It was revelatory, really, because I could see how they, uh, the range of different zoos, it didn't matter how, if they were well-funded or ramshackle zoos, the elephants all were doing the same thing. So, and the more, the well-funded zoos have, um, they try to do what's called enrichment, which is hiding food all over, or, you know, just trying to interrupt or interfere a little bit more, but they just can't. It does, none of it really works because, like in Dallas, they have um, the keepers can't go in there. They don't have, I mean, most zoos have protected contact now, which means the keepers can't go in with them because the keepers were all getting killed or not all getting killed. But, you know, it was like this tough guy zookeeper mentality. We go in there and we have our right. bull hook and we can, we can control them, but there were accidents. So what I saw was just rationalization on the part of the the most thing that I know or one of the things I noticed was that people had to rationalize to their kids what was going on you know the kids see it right away why is it doing that and the parents oh it's dancing oh look it's dancing and trying to rationalize it away and it made me so mad I was like no it's that just tell them what it is it's we can see what it is it's like what you're saying that I think that this they're soothing themselves, they're rocking. And so we as all beings can identify with when another being is suffering. And I think that's why, I mean, I hope that the video, people can look at it and 
it can't, it doesn't have to be such a downer in a way, like where it's so depressing because it's also, I mean, it is, it certainly, it certainly is hard to see, but I wonder if, you know, this rocking it's, we rock our children, you know, this identity, being able to be strong enough to witness, bear witness to their suffering. There's something in that and something also mesmerizing about it by watching them and rocking, seeing them rock or pace. So I guess when I was in Houston, I heard a keeper based really lie about what was happening. Cause I said to him, what, why is it doing that? You know, I didn't say I knew why, but he said, Oh, it's, it's good for them. They, it helps their circulation, you know? So this is what we're being fed. And he's a apparently, you know, supposed to be a scientist. Why is he telling people that it's good for their circulation when it is not, not, it's not, it, walking is good for circulation. You know, what it really is doing is, is, uh, hurting their joints. So I didn't, I also didn't really see much, you know, there's a, a closeness where the, if they noticed that I was there, a lot of times when I went to zoos, they didn't really notice that I was there. Um, but when they did, they would also, they would come out and try to interrupt the elephant or they would do something because they knew that probably I was recording this, this, um, really difficult behavior, you know, it gives evidence to the insufficiency of their work. And at the same time, they work so hard. I can't, I have to say, you know, as a person who, (laughs) it's a really complicated thing. Like these are people who got into this business, which it is a business (laughs) because they love animals. Right. I mean, they study them. They're like, Oh, I want to work and help animals. What they've been fed is a lie that zoos are helping them. And really what they should be doing is I shouldn't say the word should, but you know, conservation is actually helping, but captivity is doing nothing but holding them prisoner. Right. It isn't, Usually, it's not the case that there's just outright a physical abuse happening. That does happen, I'm sure, especially at some of these road roadside yeah. operations. But at, at your largest zoos, probably not. But the the issue isn't isn't that, and it isn't necessarily the fault of the keepers. It's the issue is the the captivity. Yeah. The issue is the lack of freedom, the lack of stimulus. Yeah, and your video, it's. Uh, I cannot imagine it is possible for anyone to see your video and not to see the depth of the word that comes to mind is humanity. Obviously mm-hmm. I'm not claiming that these are humans, but the depth mm-hmm. of relatable mm-hmm. suffering and empathy and emotion and just the depth of these creatures in their, in their faces and their eyes in their stereotypic motions. Mm-hmm. Do you know, in, in Albuquerque, I would see there was one elephant in this, it was sort of a larger group. Actually, at Albuquerque, they have a lot of them. So it doesn't matter also how many because one elephant was rocking, 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 she was just relentless, you know, all day. And her, her, the other elephants, her sisters, her aunts, or whatever they like to call them, but they are, they do become a, attached to each other as a family. And they came over to her mm-hmm. kept, and kept trying to interrupt her. Like she's the the one rocking and they're like, come on, get up, come on, let's not do that. You know, they kept trying to um, interrupt her. What, I mean, this is, that was so 
so heavy for me to see and also heartwarming. There was a baby in there. She's dead now. You know, I get, I got really in doing all of the research, I get really attached to each of them and they move them around. And there's just, there's just no good reason to, to do it because it's not, it's not what they say and what they claim to do. What zoos claim to do is to be educational or get people to become the next scientist. You know, it's all, it's all a lie. It's all a money-making endeavor and people don't realize this. It's like they're participating in something that is an old idea and it's not benefiting anybody, but the, the people who profit from, from the zoo. And I know there's a lot of zoos that are publicly owned, but it's not, it doesn't, help anything having to do with conservation. What it is doing is lulling people, I think, into that, oh, everything is okay. And there are good things about the idea of a zoo, like going out and as a family and having a spending time outside or, you know, we can actually educate people and say, hey, we're, you could tell a kid, I think, we have found out that we've evolved so much that our ticket money is going to pay for us to not see captive animals because guess what? They suffer and they can't breed and they can't exhibit any of their natural behavior. So we've learned this. We know this to be true. And so what we're going to do is play in the sprinkler (laughs) because that's all kids really want to do anyway. That's the most exciting part is the jumpy things or the sprinklers or, you know, the, they don't care. They don't spend that much time. And think about what do kids, what do most kids love? Are dinosaurs. They've never seen a dinosaur. So why do they have to see any of these animals in these prisons? They could just see, uh, actually Dallas has a tunnel where you cut through and they have projections inside the tunnel. You know, there's solutions that we could, we could um, create to replace and then how do you get these scientists to actually to really do study? You know, I was I visited at um, CSU, Colorado State University, and I did a talk there and a projection on campus and they have a big zoology program. And so I was whenever I encountered a student who was in that program, I, w- I said, you know, question your teachers. You don't have to do what's always been done. We can evolve past and you can say there are some success stories like condors, right? We can hold, there's a muskrat. There's a few, like Les O'Brien. He's a really great um, zoo expert. He's, he wrote an essay in the book and he is the whistleblower saying, let's stop doing it the way we've been doing it and only focus on the ones that are successful. And the other ones are just for entertainment and for money-making. So actually do conservation, do the science. You know, I'm not saying ban, the whole thing i'm saying do what's almost evolved to a more humane way and not have animals on view for our entertainment for any reason you know it call the ones who can't be rewilded which are all of them most of them call it a hospital <laughs> and stop breeding you know there we could we could really evolve there's what people who are much smarter who know that that we could how we could transition you know i'm 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 just offering those ideas as from what I've read. Right. Instead of spending the hundred dollars to, to go to the zoo, we could donate the hundred dollars to real conservation efforts and watch a David Attenborough movie or read a Carl Safina book or something like along those lines. 
yeah, tell the zoo, I'm not giving you my $100 and here's why. And if you stop your breeding program and you actually donate to places where we protect habitat, I will pay $50. You know what I mean? Like right. I, you, it's, it's like signaling what, where we want to put our money and what we need to do. That David Attenborough documentary is so good. Oh, they're, they're all so good. I, yeah. I tried, he, you know, he's, he's not getting any younger. Um, I, I reached out to him. I tried. He has a new book out that I think has to do with veganism and uh, kind yeah. of the fate of the planet. And I, I reached out to his publicist, but I, I didn't get a reply back. So, okay. If, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about the installation component of this project. Sure. You have toured around to many cities and multiple countries. Uh, projecting this video guerrilla style in cities, in national parks, and everywhere in between, mm -hmm. and stopping to explain the plight of these elephants to anyone curious who walks by. In one of the essays in your book, Mandy Suzanne Wong writes, quote, no gallery can contain 30 times a minute, like no enclosure ever contains an elephant, end quote. It's a beautiful and astute mm -hmm. comment. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, you have historically been primarily a print photographer, but you view the heart of this project as these public projections. So could you talk to us about the projections and why you decided to incorporate them into your art in this case? Sure. It, it really evolved so organically where after I made, after I captured all of that footage and after I made that video and had the first show, I was in Chicago and I proposed a grant or, you know, I wrote a proposal for this grant to do an installation at this community center. That was the first, that was the beginning because I, I was awarded this grant to the, the goal of it was to bring art out into the communities of Chicago and to not be, you know, only in museums or centralized. And so this place, this, it was called the Broadway Park Armory and they have, at this place, it's really um, an active community area with or center with basketball players and senior center, gymnastics for kids, a cooking class thing, just vibrant drug dealing in the in the in the parking lot because it's right by the train, and so it's really a lot happening. And I proposed to do the it was going to be inside because I didn't know yet mm -hmm. what about this what so then I was driving by I thought what if I did it on the outside and that felt so exciting I thought that's it I should try to do that I should do I should propose that so I had no idea how hard that is to actually do projections outside because um, you need there's ambient light and you need a strong projector and but I got the grant so then I had to figure out how to do it and then the uh, the first projection was so cool because everyone asked what are you doing right you know, coming and going and i i i was like this is really a good thing to do i've completely stumbled into it and because i could talk with people kind of one at a time and they got it and it was kind of the same thing as seeing the painters that first time, you know, this guy, he put, went into the parking lot and he part, he got out and he looked at me and he's like, man, we're so messed up. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. was like, I love you. I mean, yes. And, 
just to be able to talk, it added this layer because I learned so much in making the video and then to be able to talk to people about it and show them, I don't have to, like you're saying, like, I don't have to talk about what, what I saw or what I think I just can show this and people identify and it, I hope, I mean, after that first one, I started just doing it everywhere. I just got kind of obsessed. I didn't, I didn't intend to even photograph them. I just thought, what if I do it all over Chicago? What if I just do it everywhere? And then I'm showing people about this. I mean, it was very driven to just kind of the same as getting the footage. And, you know, I did one on the, on the back of the orchestra hall and I got kicked out of there on the, I did that one. That was in the days where I was doing them on multiple nights, but I've learned that not to do that because they find you and then kick you out. <laughs> well, so <laughs> yeah, you said you got kicked out, but you, you, I mean, I, I mentioned it, but you haven't said that you're often doing this without permission. And so you need to be ready to throw everything in, in the car and hit the road when the sirens, when you start hearing the sirens or whatever it is. Yeah. It's never that bad. It's more like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm just, you know, I try to, I'll tell the police, the police are actually pretty cool about right. it. It, it. Like I did one over on Devon and I thought they were going to be mad at me or what are you doing? Or the owner called and they just were watching and it was nice. It's always a nice engagement and, and, um, with anyone and be, you know, so, but I, it doesn't mean that I've never been asked to leave. I try to find the best place that seems like public, the public enough people will see it, you know, or really where there's less ambient light. I'm, I'm pretty limited. And, and, and then I think about how it will look and there's a lot of factors. Like when I get to a new city and I don't know where I'm going to do it, I look around, I almost have like, all right, look at where to turn the radar on for the right spot. Yeah. And, and it always turns out to be some magical thing where people see it. And even if only a few people will talk to me, I get to, they're like, who's, who sent you? Why are you? And I'm just like, no, it's just me. I'm just trying to do this. I was in Santa Monica and there's a, along the 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 Pacific Coast Highway there I did it on this really fancy white house on the on in oh no in Malibu sorry and there's a ridge up behind the highway and people saw it from way up there and they came down and they're like oh we just really wanted to see who who was doing that meanwhile the owner of that house didn't know have any idea you know I felt kind of like is this cool to be like using this person's right. house but if they if if they got mad I would have said oh I'm sorry but here I'd try to tell them about it sure. <laughs> you know and like see if but sometimes I ask I mean like if it seems really rude when I was in Beverly Hills I I wanted to do it on this hedge and I knocked on this gate and I said can I would you mind if I came back because it felt so invasive like uh, in a small neighborhood, you know, or uh, that, and I was, would have been too nervous in a way, like how much, how much am I willing to take on <laughs> mm-hmm. as far as how scared I want to be. But like when I went to Portland, I called ahead, I called the, actually I called the police department and said, do you guys care if people put generators or cords or I'm going to do this project all over downtown Portland? And they were like, oh, I don't think we're, you know, 
I just kind of wanted to get the temperature yep. of how strict they are. Yep. And he seemed pretty cool. The one person I talked to and he's like, just watch out for your cords. So I was like, okay, well, this will probably be okay. I almost did it just for my nerves to not be too scared. But like at Harvard, they were, you know, do not go. Harvard was, they're really strict about their campus. So I had to be careful. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know about this idea of doing it guerrilla. Like why I'm was so interested in doing that. It's just that it, it does, it's such a hassle to try to talk to everybody and get permission and, and it ruins the gesture of it. You know, it's a gesture of surprise. It's a gesture about what's happening for really all the time, every day. And that to, how are we numb walking around, walking home from your commute or driving by? It's like a jarring thing. Who's doing that and why? And so the energy of it is to say, Hey, look at, this is actually happening. And no, I didn't ask permission. I'm just here to share this. And I think that people really respond to that. And even if only a few people, again, it just felt like just for myself, because the elephants matter to me that they are invisible you know, and the zoo's just rocking every day. No one knows what's happening. And so this helps people to see what's happening. And I feel like it's a mission that we can't keep letting things like this happen. And we can't keep letting old, old, you know, bad ideas just continue and perpetuate on. I mean, we have so many things happening in society right now that we're waking up to saying, hey, this is so wrong. And, you know, I think if we it's just sort of these incremental steps into seeing, seeing the truth. And then, then we can heal it or change it and stop it. So you've already touched on this briefly, but in the press release for 30 times a minute, we read that it quote explores the way animals in captivity function as symbols of persistent colonial thinking that a striving for human domination over nature has been normalized and that consumption masks as curiosity, end quote. Could you talk to us a little bit more about what you perceive to be some of the deeper themes behind your work, especially mm-hmm. the, just that idea of colonial colonialism mm-hmm. over animals? Yeah, I think it's that, again, it's like that invisible system that we are participate, uh, that people we participate in, because it's the structure of, of how it's always been. You know, we've always like, no one even doubts that hu- uh, the idea of human supremacy. You know, like it's just a given that we we can go and do whatever we want. That's kind of what, how we've been programmed. And I guess if we just step back and think about it. It's like, why, how is that allowed, you know? And I guess I've even had to reprogram myself in a way because as an artist, I think, well, I'm not making work that's about real issues. (laughs) You know, I have been programmed to think that issues about animals are less important. And so within my own practice, I think, oh, I should be making work about different, different injustices and but really it's the whole package all together of, of how injustice and how there's power imbalance. And that if we start with 
one area, I mean, just this is the area that I'm really interested in because I guess it's just the, the it, essentially, I mean, I think that it's about all of society anyway. You know, if we're, if we're cruel and if we don't, if we're blind, I guess is the word. It's not people aren't trying to be cruel. It's just blind. It's thinking about what, who, who's been exploited today for me to have what I have. Like people or non-human animals or, or animals, you know, to really think about that, I guess, is what I've been thinking, because I've been doing this project about chickens and um, food systems and the, it ha- it's, I started it before the pandemic and all the, the factory workers who've been working in the meat industry and just thinking about, you know, when we get meat, when people get meat that is cheap <laughs> or their clothing that is cheap or anything, you know, there's people who are being exploited. And, and, and of course, in the meat industry, it's animals being exploited, meat or dairy or whatever, that, you know, I've become vegan because of that, because of learning. So it's all like this learning, it's this process. So I don't even know if I'm answering your question, I'm jumping all around. But I guess it's like this idea of power imbalance. And yes, that we are so curious, you know, when you say curiosity, I write curiosity masked as, or consumption masked as curiosity, like we're consuming, and how am I consuming? And where am I spending my money? And I think if we just could, if everybody started noticing what they do with their money, or with what they, how they consume, you know, we could we could help the planet. We could make a big difference just individually. Like I saw this great book at Spoonbill in Brooklyn, and um, <laughs> I I almost ordered it on Amazon because I didn't want to carry it. <laughs> I didn't buy it at the time, and um, I called. I got home and I called them from Chicago. I called and I said, "Hey, do you still have that book?" Because I and I ordered it. I said, "Do you ship?" and not to be bragging that I'm so like great and it's privileged to be able to spend extra. Like I spent more than I would have on Amazon, right? It was like $15 cheaper to get it on Amazon. And I thought, I can't do that. I I have to call this bookstore and ask them. That's where I learned of it. And then if I go to the grocery store and the meat is, well, any meat, I don't eat meat, but there's a reason that meat is, you know, antibiotic inflated, Um, and cheap and that there are people who've had to process that and they stand in line at the factory wearing a diaper because they can't take a break and losing limbs and as soon as we start to learn that elephants in captivity rock all these animals that are far roaming animals in captivity for our entertainment not education uh, suffer the people and animals are so exploited. It's, it's like, we just have to question all of these systems. So the colonial system is one of taking, right? And um, so, I mean, to, to be awake to to it and to not be blind is, I guess, what I want to try to tackle forever with my work. Yeah, I think as a species, we're capable of being incredibly myopic. I think most people, maybe mm-hmm. all people would say that they love animals. Most people I assume would say that. Mm-hmm. And yet almost everyone eats meat. 
Almost everyone wears leather. Almost everyone or many, many people, almost certainly the majority would take their children to a zoo, a circus, to the degree those still exist. Mm. Um, and even, even in the best, the best case scenario, you know, adopting a rescue pet, for example, and I'm not saying that that is a bad thing to do, but mm-hmm. say you have a family, you know, four siblings, uh, four cat siblings, and you only want to take one. So we just assume that it's okay for us to just separate those siblings and take one on our own. Mm-hmm. So everywhere that you look where humans are interacting with animals, it is, it is on our terms yeah. without consulting the animals. And that sounds like a, a ridiculous comment, but the point is that we just, we just assume that we could do whatever we want with them. And we we're not even conscious of the fact that, that this can be, disturbing and traumatic to them and that we put them through incredible suffering, not even talking about the factory farming and those sorts Mm -hmm. of things. But zoos are, I think your project is so beautiful because zoos are such a a wonderful illustrative example Mm -hmm. where we put them in these conditions. And when you see your video and your photographs, it's, it's evident the amount of suffering we subject them to. And yet we don't even that doesn't even register until someone points it out to us. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the zoos, I am certain you mentioned earlier that the, the zookeeper told you that it's a form of exercise or they do it for fun or something. Mm-hmm. I would, I would be almost certain that that's a talking point that they've been, that they've rehearsed with the the head of the zoo people. If people ask about this, this is the response. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, it's a very, it's a machine. I mean, it's, I guess that's, um, it's really, it's really interesting that you said that, like that, it that taking into account their feelings or their how they are is so not it's so it's not part of our culture. We don't take them into consideration, you know, and so I guess that's why it's hard to, you know, I think about the what am I doing? You know, what am I trying to do? And that's why I wanted to make the book, I guess, is the, that if I could, yeah, I started photographing the, the, the installations and then it just that those got interesting. I thought, Oh, I'm documenting, I'm creating this archive of, uh, of this, these happenings that I can't ever replicate. I, there's such a, it's a happening, but that if I photograph them, it's at least a somewhat of an archive and I wanted them to, you know, be beautiful and they're just a different layer to it. And I thought, okay, now who could I recruit to partner with? I think partnering to get these messages out, like you're talking about that there's, there's a lot of work to do to just wake up to what what's normalized, you know, that we don't even think about separating those cats and what is the solution? You know, let's, I have to, I want to learn all the time. What is the solution? And there's people who are thinking about solutions and that's what Hope Ferdosian who wrote in the, in the book, she has Phoenix Zones initiative and she talks about solutions and the non-human rights project and talking about giving personhood rights to non-human animals and these rat, what were, what could be considered radical ideas they're pushing forward and they're not radical. They're actually really common sense. <laughs> you know, how is the law working? And I love that you mentioned Mandy's essay too, because she comes at, she's um, comes at it in such a, it's so 
amazing to have somebody write about my work like that, you know, how she describes it. And so that felt, the whole thing is all kind of this unfolding and a surprise that, okay, now the book can carry forward all of these ideas with the voices. There's nine essays in it. So that all of those voices. If you don't mind, let me just, let me just frame this quickly for the listener. Um, sure. So your book contains nine essays. One of them by Julia Cook is a journalistic piece written about your project, but the other eight, while some of them mention your project, they're, they're not really about your project. They're essays that provide different perspectives and insights into elephants right. and their plight. In, in, in addition, your book includes a, a biography section that details publicly available information about each of the elephants that your project has documented. We learn, for example, that Suki, who was an elephant born in Thailand in 1964 and was captured in 1965, has been sold 10 different times. This elephant has transferred hands after a financial exchange 10 times, which is to say that your book includes a lot of material that isn't even really about your project. It's about the elephants. The, the book comes across really as a testament about and for the elephants as much as it does uh, a documentation of, of your art project. Of course, it, it details that too, but it, it's so much bigger than that. It's, it, it reaches beyond just a focus on you and your work to really devote a significant amount of its attention to the actual elephants, which I thought was wonderful. Oh, well, that, thanks. I, that's, I think that and I, I was the one who compiled the, all those bios. It was so much work because there's these random um, lists and they're incomplete. And to really just dig, you can find through different ways, just lots of research, finding who, who lived where right. and what happened. And, and yes, I, that Joyce Poole and Petter Granley are writing their, you know, these unbelievably um, renowned researchers. And tr I tried to cover all of the ways, you know, so that the book could, um, I don't want to say teach people, but that it would be really important to learn uh, and, and to reference. So what is a sanctuary that Catherine Doyle writes for the pause sanctuary? And what is, what are, how are, what is happening with non-human rights and Mark Beckoff, I mean, somebody who I've read so much of his teaching about um, animals and emotions. And that if, if people could just read, you know, they can read any of the essays and be moved in a different way. And that sort of surrounded by all of these voices are the elephants um, that hold the book and that the energy of all those elephants is like, hey, listen, look at look at what happens when we're held captive, as Joyce um, Poole writes, and then what happens, what happened to Les as a zookeeper, you know, who really was gotten to, you know, was so hated by the zoo industry for speaking out, and w that Linda, I mean Linda Hogan, her her poetic writings. I wanted there to be, you know, a softness in there. I felt kind of, it was really exciting because I had never put together, I felt like an editor, like, Ooh, I should, this is really fun to who who's missing, you know, in, mm. in this. And 
then um, and then Mandy's essay, which is just this um, about the audio component and what the experience of the video. Um, and who am I forgetting? I guess I got the the Catherine Doyle working with her was really interesting because I learned so much about. I mean, I've been to the sanctuary, but that she she's a scientist and she knows you know she knows that it's not this, even a sanctuary is not an ideal place, like just no yeah. more captivity and to have that in there too. That's amazing. When she writes, if I, if I have the right essay, she writes, I run a sanctuary and to be clear, the focus of my work is, is eliminating sanctuaries because even this is not the end goal is to have them in the wilderness, not to have them in sanctuaries. Yeah. I think you'd be hard pressed to find the head of a zoo <laughs> who will say the same thing. Um, no, all of the essays are wonderful. I actually spoke to Mark Beckoff for this podcast about his book, Animals Agenda, which he wrote with Jessica Pierce. And mm-hmm. that's that book has informed a lot of what I've been saying when, in this discussion with you. He They really take a focus on just the simple idea of freedom mm-hmm. in that book. Are animals free to pursue their own agendas? And the fact is that animals in nature live incredibly complex, rich lives. They, I think elephants, I think this is detailed in your book, but the average elephant has a range of somewhere between 1,000 and maybe 12 or 15,000 miles in a year. And if, if you just think about that, to collapse from that to whatever they have at, at, at a zoo, maybe, maybe an acre, right? If, if they're lucky, maybe, maybe significantly less than that. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and also, I, I just wanted to say the biographies, I, it's, it's really important and wonderful that you did that. I'm certain that it took a lot of work, but it, it just, it's just an illustration that these elephants are individuals and they have histories and those histories matter and they've yeah. been through things and those things matter. And the fact that they're trading hands shows just an indifference and you can you can hear the the financial calculations behind that we we purchased this elephant but it just isn't you know it's the bottom line isn't right so we'll try to get it get it to someone else and then the mm-hmm. same thing happens and they move the elephant again and the and again um yeah and then the the breeding i mean it's just it's awful it's just it's atrocious and that their babies are taken from them i mean it was it was i have to say like this project has been hard to take to mm-hmm. do. I'm like, ugh, you know, to not get cynical and not be like, I went to at the end, I I finished making the video and, but I was in Cleveland. I'm like, okay, well, I, I of course have to go and see if maybe I could include Cleveland, Cle- include the elephants who live here. And I never named the zoos in my, in the biographies because I want to name the city that they are in, that they are a, a, a living being living in this particular location. And that, yes, it's, it, that felt really important to me to not name the zoo because it almost c- perpetuates their property-ness. Right. And um, while it's true, <laughs> they're a property, they're, they're considered things under the law, it's just like a table, I mean, there's welfare laws, but they don't meet. I mean, if you had an, a, a, you can basically just give it enough food and water and barely the space and it, and 
it passes welfare laws. I mean, it's just insane. You can take an orangutan and put it in your garage for its whole life and just feed it and drink it. And that's legal. How, I mean, how is that? That's like taking your grandfather and locking him in your garage for the his, from, from when he was a baby ripped from his mother to his dying day as an old man. Like that's what we're doing. And that if we can't see that, what sort of person are we, you know, if we can't see it. So doing the bios was killer. I felt like, you know, really sad and that to, cause you read and see these old, old, old pictures of when a lot of the times, a lot of the, the zoo elephants came in the sixties and they were circus, um, right. for circuses and no one knows this. It's a whole, it's a whole underground thing. And that racket and, um, they're treated so terribly and ripped. Just, I just think about how these elephants do not, the mother elephants don't let their babies go. I think it's 15 feet for the first five years. They don't leave them for they're, they're And then they're together their whole life. So I don't know. I just, I actually have chills when I think about it and it's like, we don't want to think about this stuff. I think that there's a little enough pain and there's enough, dysfunction in the world. Like, I don't want to think about what, but we have to. And I think starting, starting with, it's almost like starting with the easy things, like to stop, stop the breeding of these, these elephants over and over. It's, it's so invasive. It's so, it's so awful for them. So if we could all just tell the zoos, I should start a letter writing campaign or something. I mean, in terms of the breeding, I think people, some people may hear that and think this is part of some, you know, coordinated effort to, to preserve species on the brink of collapse. But in fact, what the, what the zoos are doing is they're breeding animals and then they're selling them to other zoos for a profit. Yes. And they do not thrive. I mean, if, if if you look at what um, one of the markers of welfare is if they can breed and elephants can't breed naturally, they cannot right. breed. In, in, so that is the big red flag and that the babies die so often they just can't, it's not working. <laughs> it's just not working. So stop it. And then this illegal import that happens in the middle of the night from um, Swaziland, they, they didn't even have time to, to figure out like the judge didn't know there's no law. It, but there's there there's an underground money-making operation. It's kind of like really dark what's happening and that people in Omaha or Topeka or wherever, you know, they 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 went to five zoos in the US. Charles Siebert wrote a really great piece about it in the New York Times magazine about that import that happened and that was illegal, but it they got it under the wire to import these 17 elephants. And the CODA Foundation did a ton of the research on on that and in in trying to either stop it or there's all these people trying to work on so that it won't happen again. Lisa Kane, she's a lawyer in Seattle, and she's trying to, um, you know, they're going to try to do it again, I'm sure, because the zoos here need to be replenished because because breeding doesn't work. And lifespans are so short. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're in captivity. They say that a normal lifespan is 30 years, but in the wild, 
I mean, they have like a special lifespan for captive elephants. No, what lifespan of an elephant is 60 to 75 years. It is not 30 years. And they say that, oh, this elephant lived to 50. That is not that old in the wild. It's not very good. <laughs> it's it's like, like celebrating a human who, who lived to 50 as yeah. a triumph. <laughs> right. So they, they do not thrive. They, they have figured out like to try to change the surface. They're trying. I mean, they try, try, try to make it so that it's less torturous, you know, by changing the surface. Uh, not, it's not concrete. You know, zoos have evolved in certain ways. None of it is sufficient. There is actually Joyce Poole says that no, or uh, I don't know if it's her, if I'm quoting her, because it might be Cynthia Moss, that no enclosure is sufficient. It's also Mark Burkhoff writes about this, about welfareism. And what welfareism tries to do is make things as good as possible and as sustainable as possible within the current paradigm. So without really making any changes to the way things operate will will add six you know six more inches to the cage or will right. maybe we'll add a bit of padding to the to the concrete floor or or what have you but not addressing anything fundamental just just tweaking these these minor you know like you said putting food in two places instead of one to add a little bit of diversity but that's not going to compensate for the loss of being in, in the wilderness and having to navigate to a new location and having a, a family around you that you have to protect and yeah. knowing where the watering holes are and knowing where the, where the trees that produce fruit are. Yeah. And I, they, and they, I think about when I was doing these, the bios, I thought all of these elephants that I have met and have been able to say hello. And I do feel like, by filming them and standing there all day for a few, couple days, if I go back, I feel like, I mean, nothing will interrupt the stereotypy enough. Like they're going to do it. They're going to, they're just zone out. They're just, they're just in it. It's so, so heartbreaking. And at the same time, I think that they are, they notice me. They're like, what is this person doing? So if I, you know, like, okay, so that's a gift I can give back to them that maybe I was interesting to them for a, mm -hmm. for one day. And I thank them when I leave. I'm always sad to leave. And then doing the research on where they're from and that they were babies when they came to this country. And, um, you know, I know where they lived and I know probably how badly they were beaten. And now the zoos don't do that anymore. You know, I, I, I don't think they do anymore beat them. But they sure did. And so what zoo or what elephant hasn't been beaten? Not very many. You know, they know what it's like. And that's they're emotionally intelligent, too. It, I, you know, this may very well not be the case, but it I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that those elephants seeing you there picked up emotionally that you were doing something different and that you were kind of paying attention to them. And yeah, I think it's within the realm of possibility that they discerned that maybe you were looking out for them a little bit without, <laughs> without wanting to claim too much, but yeah. their elephants are intelligent, emotional creatures and they're perceptive. So yeah. don't underestimate what they're <laughs> capable of. Yeah, I hope so. I do. I, I hope so. And then I even taking it a step further, I wonder, you know, when I projected on the waterfall in Portland um, or anywhere, you know, when I turn on, the projector and they're out 
and yes, they're rocking and yes, they're showing that they're suffering and, but they're on a landscape and I see them and people are seeing them and we're, we're bearing witness to their suffering and can there possibly be some healing energy that they, since they're on some high elephant frequency, <laughs> can they, can they, you know, that's so flaky to think maybe, is it? I don't know. But I like to think like the energy works that way that, that maybe by a, a stranger or me or, you know, seeing them, I don't, I, as soon as I say that, I'm like, no, get them out of the zoo. <laughs> That's well, what we need to do. I mean, if I could, if I could re restate that somewhat differently, you, you mentioned earlier that it's, it's hard to deal with these things and it's depressing and without a doubt that's true, but ignoring the situation doesn't make it less depressing. It just means that we're not aware of it. So mm. I do think that this type of engagement and this type of work does, it does change the energy among the people that encounter it and, and, and view your work. And it, it gets the, it gets the gears turning and it gets people thinking and engaging perhaps with new ideas. And that's the type of thing that does down the road, it, it does hopefully produce new outcomes and improved uh, an improved situation for these animals. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. I do. I feel I, I feel that I feel that that's the impulse. I wouldn't be so driven. Otherwise, you know, I want to make a difference that every Mark Beckoff writes a lot about that, too, that everything we do, any little bit is it makes a difference. And everybody can make a difference. And, and, and if we just all try, and I guess part of, part of making the difference is, is being awake to the status quo. Well, that, so starting to wrap up here, but I do have a couple more questions. Sure. Um, and this, this is just, just throw, putting it out there. I, I don't expect you to have a highly polished answer to this, but it, it kind of touches on what we were discussing before in terms of whether or not change is happening or will happen. And you, one of the essays, in, I think it was the, the journalistic piece about your project, references that there has recently been an animal turn in the art world. And I've also spoken to a bunch of academics in the humanities. And there's also an animal turn happening in the humanities where people are starting to pay more attention to animals and to grant that this is something that's deserving of attention. This is something that is urgent and requires us to address it. So I'm just curious to what degree that you feel that this is true, that there is a, a real animal turn in the arts and do you feel a part of it? Do you feel that there's a camaraderie among quote unquote animal turn artists who are all, uh, you know, encouraging each other and, and taking inspiration from each other? What are your thoughts on this? Is, the, is there an animal turn in the arts and what's, what's going on with it? Because in academia, it's becoming, you know, there's animal studies programs um, more and more, and it's, it's becoming more there's more attention like you're saying and i don't see a lot of artists doing work or hardly any actually doing animal rights work but i see work about, again about using animals and 
so I guess I, I mean, Julia's, Julia Cook writing about that, I think is true, but it's, it's still smaller. It's a yeah. small, I mean, I look to Suko. She's a, uh, the, the, she's a great artist, printmaker. And um, to me, she's unapologetic. She, of her, her mission and her purpose. And she makes work about factory farming and she has done it forever. And to me, that's really inspiring and kind of a, a good rudder, a lead for me to show me, okay, just keep making your work, keep focused on this on this issue. And there's a lot. I mean, I look at uh, Giovanni Aloy. He has a publication called Antenna, Antenne, which has a lot. It's about plants and animals, artists dealing with plants and animals. And that's a rich resource. So I feel like there's a lot of journalistic, like Joanne MacArthur also comes to mind. She does this wonderful, just amazing photojournalistic work. Also, she has a book called Captive, and she has a new one that just came out. And so it's it's the world's waking up. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix yeah. wrote the intro for her book. So yeah. it's becoming more known and not as freakish if you're a vegan <laughs> and you think about this the vegan restaurants and so yeah. i think it's happening on that front so but i i don't really um there's a little bit of again it's i don't think it's huge in our world yeah. i don't i i i yet I well i don't think it's huge in the humanities period i think that i Something else that I do is I, I edit a book review page at a literary journal, and I, I work with I've worked over the over the years with well over a hundred academics, mostly PhD students, some some professors, but very very few of them are especially interested in animals. I, in my opinion, I think that you and your peers in this are on a vanguard because if you think about academia, it's an intensely political field and the art world too art the art galleries in chelsea and art forum magazine i I think it's a very political the whitney i mean the bn alley this year or last year was exclusively exclusively political work so it's simply that that world and i and i think the broader humanities simply does not yet perceive animals to fall within the realm of the political they're simply not Mm -hmm. worth taking into consideration yet, but I don't think that that will last forever. And I don't think it'll last very long. Maybe perhaps I'm idealistic, but I I do think that that will change. And once we cross that tipping point, I I think that it could happen quite quickly that people Mm -hmm. catch on that there's billions, billions of animals being killed every year and millions of other animals that are kept in intense captivity who really live quite terrible lives the the total biomass alive that the human species is killing and causing immense suffering to is is just beyond it's beyond fathom so yeah i think we're i do i agree i think that it's coming and i also think like stephen wise says that animal rights is the biggest the next biggest civil rights issue of our time. I believe that's true. And I believe that too. And you look at Lantern Press, they publish all um, animal rights work and artists. And I feel like Lantern is a good, good press to look 
to artists who are doing dealing with these issues or Catherine Eddy. She's been doing work on animals for years. There's people who've been doing it. It's just not taken as seriously because it is still fringe. It is just the same as humanities is what you're talking about. I mean, in the humanities. But as we've seen, I mean, I think, I think it was over the course of maybe 10, maybe, maybe 20 years where the gay rights cause was utterly transformed, at least in the United States. So once, once that tipping point is crossed, I think change can happen quite quickly. And, and I agree with you that I don't think we are there yet in the United States. Although when you go to a, a supermarket and half, half of all the milks offered are non-dairy milks, it, mm-hmm. it makes you think, I think there mm-hmm. are, there are a lot more vegans than there were, you know, even 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. I think quite a few of those are doing it for ethical reasons. So mm-hmm. I think that I, I'm hopeful that we're on the cusp of something. I hope so. I think I think so. It, it it's nice to talk with you about this because it gives me it. Um, sometimes I get like, oh, you know, <laughs> will anyone really care? And yes, I mean, just keep going. I'm do I'm doing the the um, the chicken sculptures and this polar bear work, and I just feel like it's it's pretty endless. The the chances to address this because soon people will see that it's all the same when you're exploiting anyone you're exploiting all of us and that do we want that to be happening you know if you that's why i look i have there's all these people to learn from hope for and again she wrote the phoenix zones initiative or phoenix zones phoenix zones is the title but she has phoenix zones initiative and that it's not just eliminate it's what can we replace things with so that just that deeper thinking about, okay, if you have a factory, what can you turn it into? If you have, if you're a farmer, what can you, how can you be taught or, you know, to, to do plant-based farming instead? And it's just the same as like solar power or anything having to do with green energy. It's, we're getting there. So I, I do feel hopeful that there's a local farming just, of plant-based work, you know, that's people are wanting, there's a, there's a market. (laughs) So, well, I, I think it goes back to that Jeremy Bentham quote, which I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, he says something like the question is not, do they use, do they use human language? The question is, can they suffer? And I think that is something that should be kind of patently obvious that that is the relevant question. Are these individuals capable of suffering? And if so, what can we do to alleviate that suffering? And there's a lot to do. And there are people who are hard at work spelling out different ways in which we can make the plight of animals better. Yes, that's that's a chicken wants it's it cares about its life just as much as we care about our life. <laughs> you know, it does not want to be ground up <laughs> into anything. You know, it it's like we're we have to teach. I think teach kids or not un not let them unlearn what they already know, which right. is to live compassionately, to think of how to, how would this feel? It doesn't mean that they are, that language thing is so, it's, it's so human centric. Like let's teach kids about how to not be human centric <laughs> and that we could really, um, what if they had a class called kindness? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you know, wouldn't that, which 
add that into the curriculum. And I don't know what the what the I'm sure there's a term for this, but I, I feel like psychology 101. Everyone is biased in their own direction, right? Everyone is biased that their perception is the best perception. So as humans, we're just we simply assume that we're the ones that matter, and the 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 other perspectives don't matter. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's like when I walk my dog and even saying when I walk my dog, what the hell is with that sentence? You know, I try to make sure that Edmund decides and yes, we live in a city. So he and he chases, he'll get run over because he's so he's such a hunter. He's a husky shepherd and he will chase a bunny right into the traffic. But. I don't like having him on a leash and I don't like pulling him or telling him what to do. So when I was younger, I had um, a black lab, Ethel, my buddy, and um, I didn't really have that awareness. I feel it's a little bit of guilt. Like I would get mad at her or pull her. Yeah. And now I try to let Edmund off leash whenever it's safe. I'm like, go ahead, go chase those bunnies, you know, because he gets to decide, and Mark Beckoff talks a lot about this, like how to be, you know, he's not, I don't own him. He yep. is part of our family, and I don't, I, I feel like it's really kind of lame that he has to stay in the yard or stay in under my desk. He should be, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it, it's, there's, it's, it's a tough one because, I mean, I do think that's, they're domesticated, so it's different. They're domesticated, but that doesn't mean they weren't domesticated into 21st century city environments. They were domesticated (laughs) to enjoy being around humans, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily to, you know, get walked at Mm -hmm. 7 a.m. And then the second time at 7.30 p.m. after their their guardian comes home. Right. Um, I spoke with Jessica Pierce. She she was a co-author on Mark Beckoff's animals agenda. And I spoke with her about a, a book she wrote called run spot run, which is about the ethics of keeping pets. And it's, it's really a very illuminating book. The, the, the pet, I don't want to use the word industry, but the pet world that, that we humans live in is, is very complex and it, it can be done ethically, but it's more easy to do it unethically. And I think that people don't engage with those questions at all yet. And that's something else we're going to have to start engaging with is how do we treat our pets? What mm-hmm. types of pets are appropriate to keep mm-hmm. in in small contained environments? Because all pets, all pets are captive. Dogs are captive just as yep. much as any as elephants in zoos. We we lock them up if, you know. Yes, it's it's very I'm like all um the more we learn, it's like it's upsetting to face ourselves, you know. Yeah. Oh my goodness what have I been doing? And what are we doing? Yeah. And that, I guess it's, I mean, I don't, I don't want to really criticize. I just, I just feel like if we can just put that out there, that there's to, to consider them, to consider the other, consider what, you know, we really take into account what Edmund's day is like, with, because you know, it's my daughter and myself and my husband. My oldest is in college, but who's who? You know, we if we're all walking him multiple times or walking with him, maybe I should say, you know, he's having a better day. But 
it's it's really important, I think, to be careful that we don't. They're not our. They're not ours. You know, they're not right. ours. They're just. They're not our for us. And um, how to really think about that? Like we're not locking our kid up and not and not letting it have a life. We we would never do that, right? So we have to think the same thing. I mean, people are calling their 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 pets fur babies. That's this term, right? And I'm like, okay, well, treat it like your baby, right. and like right. actually don't leave it. And <laughs> I mean, that's such a it's a that's a I feel like a, a tough one to go into. And um, there's a million roads to thinking about how we're treating others, and that um, this aware this idea of power imbalance is kind of the common thread through all of it. Like who holds the power and why? And okay, we have a tiger, a lion behind this plexiglass. And why is that? Why is that? And it's, uh, do we need some power? Why do we have our dogs to be almost a prop? Like, let's really think about what, what is best. And do they, do we let them, everybody, a lot of people could, you know, maybe people live near a, a, an area that has some open land. And to do they let their kid, their, their kid, <laughs> do they let their kid run free <laughs> uh, or not? You know, I haven't really thought much about that other than just a, on a, just in a, in a um, it's almost kind of hard to think about because I don't want to be part, like, I don't. I don't want to think that I'm doing anything wrong. You know, I don't want to think that I'm hurting, I'm doing anything wrong. And I think that's the gentleness that we need is to appro- approach like all of it. And I hope my work can do that where it's like gently, let's think about this. Okay. Yes, this is, I know that it's not really gentle to, to show this horrifying suffering, but it's not like a violent video it hopefully will soften people's hearts or this current one, this pacing. I've been uh, recording a polar bear who paces. I've been recording her for four years. They have a webcam. So that's going to be, I mean, I have four years almost daily of footage of her pacing in the same Mm. route. And I'm like, why do I keep making this hard work? And I I don't care. I'm just going to keep going because it's about surveillance and it's about society and it's about what's what really is going on simultaneously to all of our lives is a is a lot of difficult things that we can find solutions we can we, you know I'm thinking about how can I talk about a s- solutions with with the polar bear because that's so new and I also feel so sort of awkward talking about pets too, because I haven't really thought that much about it, you know, just like everybody. Right. Well, the, the, uh, Jessica Pierce book run spot run Uh highly recommend it. That book, just like, just like your, your video and your project. I mean, it is not easy to engage with, but I personally don't find them depressing because even though the contents of them, are depressing. What I take away from them is, is hope and an attempt to 
face up to these circumstances that we're putting these animals in. And to me, that's the first step towards change. So even though the things that we're seeing are upsetting, I don't consider the projects upsetting because to me, this is the way forward. This is the way towards righting the wrongs that we're partaking in and and making the world a better place, if I can speak Mm -hmm. so, so broadly. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's, isn't that the goal? Isn't that what perhaps would be a a worthy goal for one's life work is to improve the situation for other living beings and to think about how am I participating? I think if we just think about how am I participating in the systems that we have set up and constructed and, and question them and not be just like, oh, this is what we've always done. There's so much nostalgia or I guess for with captive animals, it's what we've always done. It's normal. But is it really? And eating meat is so normal. Oh, that's what we've always, people have always, well, I don't know, you know, if, if that's true. At least, at least 10,000 years back, it's true. Yeah. I mean, that just that argument that people who want to say, oh, that's what we do, what we've always done, you know, that argument doesn't matter. It's what is, what is sustainable? What is ethical? What, what are we um, teaching our kids? You know, I try to spice in to my classes, these questions. I mean, I don't want to inundate them with animal rights ideas, but to just put, to to say, well, what do we accept as just normal? You know, I can even admit that when my, I'm new to this, I'm new to all of this uh, work in the animal protection movement. I stumbled into it. I'm not a person who can claim that I, when I was 12, I became a vegetarian. Uh, Like so many people that are, I'm so inspired by, by them, you know, I mean, it just, it just is, that's life, but that all of that is transformative and has taught me over all of these years. I feel really grateful to my projects because I've been my, the, the, the veil has been pulled from my eyes about what's going on. And now after going to the pigs, the meat packer, I would never, I couldn't ever eat pork again. And I started there. I, I still was eating meat occasionally, you know, this was in, this was 12 years ago. And so that started with, I couldn't, I, how am I supposed to eat anything pork when I've been in that space with all of these creatures that their souls are all there. It's just their eyeballs are also in, I mean, it was a huge cooler with hundreds and hundreds and rows of all these um, pigs hanging upside down. And then I, realized well it's all happening I don't I can't eat any of it now because it's like Jane Goodall says that she just felt like at a certain point she was eating death right I think Da Vinci also said that there's a Da Vinci quote circulating around really um, I personally I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be feel there's such a difference you said you feel awe of people who became mm-hmm. vegetarian at 12 and I think it's just as hard to do so later in life than it is earlier. So I think there's a lot to be proud about for Mm -hmm. engaging with these issues at 
whatever stage that you did, it's, it's never too late. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So the, the book itself is, is very beautiful. I know that you published it with Radius. So would, would you tell us a bit about what it was like working with them? Well, Radius Books, they're in Santa Fe, and they produce just gorgeous um, art books, a, a lot of f- photography books, as well as all different uh, sculpture, sculptors and painters. And they, it, I worked with David Chickey and Montana Curry, and they're just a tremendous organization. And David, uh, he designed you know, how he proposed, like, what if we do it this way with the spiral and then turning it back and forth where there's some vertical, some horizontal and putting these transparent pages in there, all of it. I was just like, yes. I mean, I had started, I made business cards that were on transparencies that I was handing out that sort of echoes the projection. And then when he suggested to put the, put that inside, I was just thought, oh, this, what a dream. And they just are, uh, it's their small publisher and they just cover a lot of ground. And I just feel like, uh, you know, I was just really in, in good hands with them. And Chelsea, or yeah, Chelsea Weathers. She she was the editor for of all. I mean, just there's a lot of text, so she had to go through all of that and help me to make the bios consistent. So I just feel like it was such a process. And you know, you're, when you're working with a publisher, you put your work in their hands in a way. I mean, it's a collaboration, but also it's a trusting process because as we edited and put the sequence together, I had to just sort of let go and give my own feedback to the, to them, but also just trust how the whole thing would turn out. And I just, it felt like a dare in a way because it's such an unconventional book that, that it's spiral and that it's has this kind of gloss cover that feels kind of like, um, it just feels different, you know, than a normal photography book. So I've just felt like the whole process was, was it the the most incredible thing, you know, how to convey these projections and this work in a way that would honor the work and what happens out on the street? Like, how do you put that in a book? And that David kind of really got that and in the fact that he'd put these full bleeds and then had them also uh, on the horizontal, that it's an interactive book. So... Radius, they just make the most beautiful books. So I'm very, I'm indebted to them. It is, it is a gorgeous book. I don't know a great deal about photography books, but this, it is clear that you were in good hands with this one. It it is, (laughs) in addition to the contents, it's simply just a beautiful object. At the very end, at the very last minute, actually, on press, you know, I had this list of every single place that elephants had been held captive from the beginning of time, A to Z. And I didn't know where or how it could live in the book, but there's a lot happening. You know, there's all the essays and the transparency. There's so much happening. And David, at the last second, he's like, what if we put it on the inside front cover and inside back cover? 
and because <laughs> it was going to be blank. When you think about that, these decisions that he just made it right there, he just so elegantly um, suggested we put it there because uh, I felt kind of sad to not include it because it just implicates. It's like, you know how I said I didn't want to use any of the zoo names, um, but it implicates, it shows this almost becomes a texture of all these places and that it's undeniable that this has been a long time coming that we need to eliminate. <laughs> I mean, that's to me what it's saying that they're tiny and that it just shows how, how kind of massive this captivity problem has been going, has been, and that there's been so many places that who've held elephants captive. So I don't, I don't in any way want it to honor them but just to acknowledge that that's where the elephants all have been held, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's clear, it's clear that a a great deal of care went into the production of this book. It's a, it's a beautiful book. So we've taken up a lot of your time to wrap up. Could I just ask, is there anything that you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? Well, sure. I've been, um, I really have started working on the factory farming of, uh, and slaughterhouse workers and chickens. Like I mentioned earlier, the, I've been making these casting, uh, chicken wings. Uh, I have hundreds and hundreds of chicken wings that I've cast and, um, chicken now the, the bone from inside that wing that the bones represent the workers in the in the slaughterhouses and the because they're invisible to the and that the 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 wings are the the chickens and their lives and every cast every bone that I make is an offering to each life so I'm working on that and I'd, I'd like to do an installation of all of the all of these sculptures with a projection um, will be part of it and that's underway. Um, I'm learning so much, researching, and then also doing the the polar bear installation project that's been going for four years. Where I've been, it's called surveilling snow lily. Uh, actually, got a, a culture and animals foundation. I'm a this year's grantee, one of for that project, um, and. Those two, I mean, I've always played spinning and then trying to get this book out in the world, to, to, which I thank you very much for helping me do that on here with you. Absolutely. Colleen, your book and the video and the public projections are all really quite extraordinary. The book in particular is a very beautiful object full of beautiful and moving photos. I I can't recommend it more highly to our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it, for putting yourself out there to capture this footage, for traveling around to share it with people, and just for thinking this subject matter worthy of documentation. I, I sincerely do appreciate that this wasn't easy and it isn't easy, that it takes courage and work. So Thank you. Uh, And thank you for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Mark. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Colleen Plum 
about her book 30 times a minute. It's a beautiful work, compassionate and fascinating and an important one. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.